Real Presence Live. That which is beautiful will manifest itself in truth and in goodness. Local. The challenges that we're facing in our generation, we just need the gospel. I mean, every every culture, every generation just needs to know how the gospel applies. Engaging. We don't bring any life at all to the church. The church is, is the life. It gives us the life. Live. The reality is, He is all things beautiful, capital B. And so anything that is authentically beautiful draws us, even if we don't realize it, to God. Good morning and welcome to Real Presence Live. I am one of your hosts this morning, Brad Gray, and I'm joined by... I'm Janine Bitson, and what a beautiful morning in the Fargo area, hopefully across our whole listening area. Holy smokes, this summer has been one after another, really. We have just been so blessed. It's been a glorious summer in my world. Yeah, it it has been a beautiful summer, except for the deluges, you know, a little spaced out with uh, the inches would be a good thing, but... um, you know what? We'll take what the Lord but, gives yeah. us. It's been so many beautiful evenings, I gotta say. It's, mm-hmm. I've been loving it. So anyway, we are so excited to be with you once again this morning on Real Presence Live. It's always such a joy, a blessing, and a privilege to, um, to dive deep into the matters of our faith. And as we get started this morning, Janine, you had a uh, meditation reflection that you wanted to share with us as we put ourselves in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a beautiful meditation this morning um, from St. Teresa of Calcutta, and uh, it, it's in the Magnificat. For those of you who have the Magnificat, I urge you to read the whole meditation that she gives us. But um, here's part that I, I just really feel is is so important to, to just dwell on uh, this morning. Humility of the heart of Jesus fill my heart. Purity of the heart of Jesus, purify my heart. Charity of the heart of Jesus, fill my heart. Jesus, I am here, love me. Since I cannot burn inside for love of you, I offer you the heat that I feel outside. Let me touch what you want me to touch. Let me see what you want me to see. Jesus, take away everything that is not you. I want my heart to be like Mary's heart. I will be all for Jesus through Mary. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you and, for sharing that. And there's Jane. so much more in that. So yeah. those of you who have the Magnificat, I just urge you to to look at that reflection today. You know, even after the weekend with the Assumption on Saturday mm-hmm. and then the, the beautiful gospel of the Canaanite woman and all that can open up for us. I mean, yeah. it's just, a, it's a beautiful trifecta. And, and, you know, honestly, it's it's a wonderful uh, meditation on on the reality of how deep our need is for Jesus, right? right. That, our need for the Lord that that He needs to be our humility, He needs to be our peace, He needs to be our power. Um, it's uh, it's it's liberating, incredibly liberating to know that it's not all on our shoulders. Right? Absolutely, absolutely, it all comes from Him, but it takes our humility and our openness to receive Him. And sometimes in the world, that's a hard thing to do mm. because we feel we're we make our own selves yes. and forget who our Creator is. You know, and that's that's actually a great uh, segue into our opening segment. We have Dr. Clay, Clay Rutledge, ah, Rutledge, <laughs> on, uh, professor of psychology at NDSU, on to start us off this morning with a, a segment on really diving deeper into our need for God and, and even psychologically how we can know that to be true. Good morning to you, Dr. Clay. Thanks so much for being on with us. Thank you for having me. Good morning to you. Well, it is a privilege, and uh, we had you on, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago, but uh, for those who who weren't able to hear that segment, can you tell us a little bit about yourself to start off? 
Yeah, so I'm a psychologist by by training, and until today, I guess, actually, is my first day of my new job. (laughs) (laughs) I was a professor of psychology at NDSU, and now I'm a professor of management at NDSU, so I've moved about a a mile, I think. (laughs) Congratulations. From one campus to the other at NDSU, Um, but thank you. So, yeah, but my, um, my background is in what's called existential psychology, which is really all of the kind of psychological traditions focused on the human quest for meaning in life and other, you know, and other existential questions, questions about transcendence and um, why am I here, what, you know, what's my purpose, and, um, you know, how do, I, how do I cope with being a, an individual that knows that I'm, you know, physically transient and, um, and I have limited time on this planet, and what, what does that do to me? How does that influence me and inspire me or scare me or, you know, all of the above? So those are existential psychologists tend to deal with, with those issues, um, and that, so that's my general area. Well, that's just fantastic. Uh, we are so delighted that you're joining us again, because the last time we talked about a paper that you had written for National Affairs that was published through them, obviously it was a segment of greater research that you have done overall, uh, but could you provide our listeners with a, a quick recap of your paper, A Spiritual Species? Yes, of course. So um, years ago, I actually got interested in this idea because I've done some work in the, and specifically in the psychology of religion. And I was everything I was reading at the time was how humans are becoming less religious, particularly in the Western world. And all that, of course, was based on very good polling data on things like how frequently people attend church. Um, People's own self-described belief, you know, beliefs, whether or not they um, they believe in God, or whether or not they self-identify as having a particular religious faith or not. So all those indicators of religious faith seem to be, at the broad level, um, of course we could dig down and find areas where people are increasing in those beliefs, but at the broad level across the Western world, those numbers have been in decline and in decline for decades, which has made a lot of people conclude that, well, people are becoming less religious. Um, And so that didn't quite make a lot of sense to me based on what I know about how the human mind works and a basic psychological need. And so my argument in in that piece was to to go and look at perhaps other clues that might, you know, that might tell us what's going on. Is it really the case that people are abandoning their spiritual lives? Or are they just becoming less religious in the traditional sense, and as a result, are becoming you know more um, alienated and alone, and in search for, in search for some greater meaning, and, and, and grappling with, with these questions. Um, and so that kind of got me into looking at this, and then I found all sorts of trends going the opposite direction, hmm. <laughs> suggesting that people are just at the same time as people are. Be- attending church less, they're um, buying more healing crystals, <laughs> right? Um, and so you can, and so what, what I, and not just me, some others have, have documented, is that it seems to be people aren't losing their religious nature or their spiritual nature um, as they turn away from from religion, they are looking for other things to fill 
to fill that void. And of course, that's been something theologians and people have have talked about um, for a long time, the idea that people don't just abandon all spiritual interests. If they, um, what's the famous quote? If people quit believing in God, they don't um, believe in nothing. They believe in, in anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think there's, there's some quote like that. So that seems to be be the case in our in our data. It seems like the people who who say they're, they're atheists or not religious um, are more likely to believe in other things, like healing crystals, UFOs, um, horoscopes, um, and, like um, spiritual energy, and, and, but not in, in a doctrinal sort of way. Um, so they're becoming kind of freelance spiritualists, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but there's some reason to be, to be concerned about that. Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of reason as a Catholic who believes that uh, yeah. everyone was created by God and, and we're destined for Him. It's uh, it's encouraging in one sense, as you say, to recognize that the spiritual nature of man is is simply inescapable. That there's always going to be a yug and a yug, a tug and a yearning. That's supposed to be a, a tug and a yearning, but it wanted to be a yug and a turning. Um, but uh, that this. This draw towards something beyond ourselves, really, we can't get past that, right? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Yeah, and and you know, it's it's so cool to be talking about this, um, you know, on this Monday morning after the Gospel of the Canaanite Woman. Mm. I mean, when you think about, she understood there there was something special about Jesus. She mm-hmm. wasn't Jewish; mm-hmm. she didn't have, but she understood that there was. He was Lord. There was something special, mm-hmm. and that He could solve the problem she was dealing with, and she was persistent and persevered and and yearned for Him to help her. Mm-hmm. And and so when people are replacing that that need for God in their life, you know they're yearning and desiring all these other things, and and they don't fulfill them. Mm. Yeah. So, Dr. Rutledge, what do you think are some of the most compelling findings you feature in the article? I mean, you've, you've kind of pointed to a couple things. Are there other additional aspects that, that really kind of captured your attention? Yeah, so one, one question we had as, and of course we're approaching this, obviously, as, as researchers, right? So right. we're, you know, as scientists. So our goal is to just document, to be as objective as possible and put our own, you know, opinions and preferences Aside, so we just approached um, this question as neutrally as possible, and we asked, "Well, if people are are turning to these alternative sources of of meaning in life, are they actually working at providing meaning? Because mm, yes. those are two separate issues, right? right. Yeah, people can do something because they hunger for it, but whether or not that actually fulfills them is a separate issue. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I think, one of the most one of the most powerful, and I guess potentially controversial for some, um, but, you know, findings we had is it seemed like these other sources of meaning aren't actually doing a good job of providing meaning. Mm. So when we look at, you know, just as one example, when we look at the more people believe in, um, in witchcraft and horoscopes, you know, in these kind of non-traditional new, you know, what sometimes people call um, new paganism or new age beliefs, or, you know, there's different varieties of, of these the more people believed in that kind of stuff or invested in that kind of stuff, the less they saw their lives as mean, meaningful, which hmm. is the opposite of what we find when we in the psychology of religion. One of the most well-established 
reliable, replicable findings in the psychology of religion is traditional religiosity, regardless of how you measure it, is positively associated with meaning in life. The more, the stronger people's faith, the more they attend religious services, the more they engage in religious practices across faiths, um, whether you're looking at Jewish individuals, Christians, Muslims, um, the more they have meaning in life. Um, and so there's something about these other more fringe beliefs that is not, even though it's motivated by the same search, doesn't appear, at least in our data, um, doesn't appear to be functioning um, to, to, to serve that need. So as a, as a psychologist and a researcher, um, how, how do you account for that? I mean, obviously you can't bring religious doctrine into it, but uh, what, is, what would psychology say in response to that? Yeah, so um, a number of possibilities. Um, one um, kind of obvious one that, that seems to you know, certainly be part of the story is that these alternative um, beliefs often don't demand anything hmm. of people and um, and religious um, religious faith brings people together into and to have community, right? To have communion and and um, if you if you go to church, if you're part of a religious group, if you're part of a religious faith that actually demands something of you, it gives you that sense that you you matter. You're part of something, and you're serving something bigger than yourself. Well, a lot of these you know new age kind of beliefs, they're more egotistical or kind of narcissistic, right? They're not about me being part of a community and doing something bigger than myself, they're about this thing serving me. Um, and that might be part of the story, because um, we also know that um, social relationships, social bonds are, are, are a very strong source of meaning. When people feel lonely or alienated, um, they report less meaning in life than when they feel connected and loved. And so it seems like on the social aspect of these beliefs um, isn't, really, isn't really there, if it's or if it is social, it's a more sort of superficial social. Like, it's fun to go maybe do things with, you know, with people, but there's no sense of duty or mm. that you that you are submitting to something bigger than yourself that binds people together. So I really think there's something about that social glue that helps provide that transcendence, that you're part of something bigger than yourself, more enduring, you know, longer-lasting than your brief mortal life, mm-hmm. that these other... Um, that these other, you know, beliefs don't seem to provide. And, of course, there might be other reasons, too, but that, that's been one that we're, we're looking at. That's a fascinating insight. I mean, the, the, this reality or dynamic that, it, from what you're saying, it sounds like meaning really can't be found within oneself. Like, it has to, you have to go outside of yourself in order to have a sense of meaning and value to your life, which is certainly flies in the place in the face of, of contemporary culture where it's really all about myself, as you said, kind of this narcissistic, you know, all the slogans out there, you have it your way, and, um, and it's all very me-centered. And yet it sounds yeah. like from what you're saying that, that it, psychologically speaking, um, you really can't find meaning for life within ourselves exclusively. Is that right? Or Yeah, no, I, I, I think you know. I think you said it better than I did. I think that's a, it is, and it is counterintuitive in the in our in our kind of western individualistic culture be modern you know kind of contemporary culture because you're right a lot of the messages that you often get and, and honestly you get a lot of these messages from my field of psychology there's this you know kind of self-help um idea of you don't need anybody right you just need to turn inward and all you have all the answers you just need to believe in yourself mm. and, and of course we want obviously we want people to be 
um, you know, confident and, you know, agentic and, you know, we, we could be held individually accountable and all, you know, all those things we like about, you know, kind of our, our Western tradition. Um, but this idea that meaning is just inside you and it doesn't come from something else, I think, I think you're right. That, that doesn't seem to be at all um, supported by, by the evidence. Meaning seems to come from your sense of mattering to something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um, to your to your family, to your faith, to your nation, to you know some cause or something that's bigger, more transcendent, and that um, and that you can play a a meaningful role in, right? Um, it, that's so true, and I think also in the Western culture, what is kind of happening simultaneously, and they kind of merge together, is when you talk about um, the narcissist way. There's also this: um, I'm not responsible. For for, you know, whatever I bring on to myself. It's always somebody else's fault. There's not this understanding um, on, on yeah, good coping yeah. skills. Can you talk a little more about that, Clay? Yeah, no, I think that's an important observation as well, because when, if you, I mean, another way to think about it is if, if meaning comes in part from feeling like you're serving something bigger than yourself, that you're part of something bigger than yourself, well, you're not really making much of a contribution if you're not responsible for anything. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, do, I, I think that is true. One of the weird things about about this sort of, you know, kind of narcissistic culture that we're talking about is the idea of I'm entitled to everything but responsible for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not a secure basis for not just meaning but psychological health more broadly. <laughs> And so, um, so I do think that's something concerning. And also, I, I think you see elements of this, and you know, what sometimes sociologists refer to as like a victim, a modern kind of victimhood culture. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just everything just happens to me, and you know, I have no agency, no ability to do anything about it. Um, which that, I mean, you don't have to think about that very long to realize. Well, that means you don't matter. Right, then that, right. if that's true, then you're you're insignificant, and if you're insignificant, then you have no nothing that you can no meaningful role that you can play in society. Which again is a good you know one of the things that um, you know traditional religious faiths tend to teach people is that they they do have a mm-hmm. you know, they do have a role they do have a service uh, that they're supposed to um, to perform, um, and so I think I think that those are those are important issues. And unfortunately we often get not very good role models or, you know, or, um, in the media and things like that. We, we don't get that message. We, you know, we don't get messages of virtue and service and duty. Um, in fact, those are kind of dirty words in, yeah. in, in many sectors of our society. Yeah, absolutely. We are speaking with Dr. Clay Rutledge right now. We are, Dr. Rutledge, we're going to have to take a quick break here. But on the other side of the break, I want to continue going deeper into this because this is just fascinating research that really um, seeks to, or not only seeks, but serves to validate um, what what we've always known to be true, um, that, that we're all made for God. And as St. Augustine says, you know, we, our hearts are restless until we rest in Him. So we're going to step away for just a quick moment, uh, but we'll be back on the other side of this break with more Real Presence Live. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network.
It's a great time to spring into summer at Riverview Senior Living Community in Fargo. Hi, I'm Carrie Dew, Executive Director. We are currently accepting new independent and assisted living residents. Riverview provides a safe, comfortable place to live with a small town Main Street feel with home-cooked food, a la carte care services, daily activities, and mass five days a week. You can contact Marin or Katie to find out about all that Riverview has to offer at 701-237-4700 or at homeishere.org. In today's world, we are enslaved to addiction. I'm Father Chris Alar. Alcoholism, pornography, and drug abuse have become the master of millions of lives, maybe even your own. Addiction has led to countless deaths by overdose and suicide. So what can be done about it? Victims often explain they are searching to escape the troubles of this world, or they are trying to find a form of ecstasy. Unfortunately, these enslavers provide neither. The experience is only pseudo, a fleeting imitation of an authentic spiritual experience. There's only one true spiritual experience that can provide fulfillment, and when you find it, you will find hope. Please visit suicideandhope.com so I can personally pray for anyone you've lost and to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. The world is changing fast and needs problem solvers and critical thinkers. Right here in your backyard, Not Marty believes every student has the potential to serve the world and make a difference. We will help you obtain a degree that prepares you for success by exploring your talents and passion. Our community goes above and beyond to help each student feel at home, surrounded by love and support. We can't wait for you to see what's possible. We hope the future brings you here, close to home at mountmarty.edu. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. And welcome back to Real Presence Live. We are having an awesome conversation with Dr. Clay Rutledge, a professor, former professor of psychology at NDSU, now professor of management. And he's talking about a paper um, that he had published recently with National Affairs on uh, called a spiritual species, and it's really dealing with our man's uh, need for meaning and, and how religion specifically seems to respond to that need for meaning where alternative efforts uh, such as healing crystals and, and different cults and so on really aren't, aren't getting the job done, right, Dr. Clay? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, kind of going off some of what we've been talking about here, why do you think it is so important for people to understand their intimate, their innate, I mean, their innate need for meaning and for God? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing we know from not just my work, but, you know, there's now a a growing amount of of research in both the field of psychology and increasingly in the field of medicine, looking at how important meaning in life is to a wide range of indicators of of health and and well-being. So it isn't just a matter of um, how you feel, like feeling good. Oh, meaning makes you feel good. Mm. In fact, a a lot of the things we do that are meaningful can be difficult, can be challenging. Meaning Mm is, um, I think that's a a bit of a side note, but I think that's one thing that's been neglected until more more recently. A lot of the things that actually give people meaning in life, such as parenting, um, are stressful and difficult. Mm -hmm. Chaotic, and so meaning isn't just you know pleasure or joy or, or anything like that. Um, 
But anyway, we know from from now decades of research, experimental research, longitudinal research, where they follow people for for you know long periods of time and, and look at their life, that people who have a strong and stable sense of meaning in life, they just tend to be healthier, more well adjusted. They tend to be less at risk for mental illness, depression, anxiety. They're less suicidal. Um, they're less likely to have problems with um, addiction, with you know drugs and alcohol and gambling. And even when, of course, bad things happen to people in life, and there are things that you know, happen that are totally out of your control, so even when people deal with these things, deal with tragedies or are experiencing mental health problems, those who have a strong sense of meaning recover better. They recover more quickly, and they have more positive responses to, 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 to treatment. So you know, I, I could keep going, but they you know, <laughs> get a sense of there's... It's just a really, really important, it's foundational to a healthy life to have a strong sense of purpose and meaning. And, and you know, that uh, is so important because, you know, there are going to be those crosses that we encounter in our lives. And, and without faith, without the ability to just be at the foot of the cross and, and have Jesus help you carry that, I, I don't know how people get through those instances without strong faith. Or even a little faith, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's an interesting turn in the in the field. Like several years ago, because before that, there was a lot of focus on more what we might call hedonistic mm. pleasures, and uh, there was a lot of research on like, oh, people just you know, how do we make people happy? Mm-hmm. And of course, of course, it's nice to be, <laughs> you know, we don't want people to be miserable sure. all the time. But um, but then you know, some researchers started to started to document a couple of things. One, as you pointed out, you can't be happy all the time. You're going to have struggles in life. And and so the and the pursuit of happiness can ironically um, make you miserable because if you feel like you should be happy all the time, then what are people doing? They're like, oh, I'm not happy right now, so what's wrong with me? And then <laughs> and then they're looking for, for pleasure. They're looking for a quick fix, something that's going to change change their mood um and so that's uh you know that 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 can actually end up making people more miserable as opposed to if they have a strong foundation of beauty and they can say you know what life's gonna there's gonna be ups and flows there's gonna be good times there's gonna be bad times how do i appreciate the good times how do i experience gratitude um and, and count my blessings during the difficult times um how do i find strength um, to move forward. So these are all important things that now we're actually starting to see more empirical researchers come around to thinking about. Of course, a lot of this is ancient wisdom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's not. These aren't new ideas, but they but they're just now you know more more likely to get some you know some attention from from researchers. Yeah, and there are you know, and and you're like so right in saying that this is you know ancient wisdom but there's all these new things that have been developed in the world for instance social media yeah and and how that you know people see other people's lives and of course it's maybe always the happy face and we're doing this and we're doing that and and then maybe people seeing it like well i don't have all of that or you know and So, yeah, there have to be all sorts of um, cult. I mean, there are different aspects of any culture that changes the mind of a culture, right? And and how they see the world. And and certainly, social media is one of the things that has shifted the the understanding of reality uh, for our people. And and you had mentioned 
uh, some time ago in our first segment about this uh, narcissistic type of approach toward the, toward uh, reality, toward the world. And it seems to me like social media would be something that plays very much into that because it's all about kind of putting myself out there and, and really that much of the focus is on me. And yet it seems like from what you're saying, that a, a very, very me-focused approach to life can, can actually be really hurtful in terms of my own psychological well-being. Yeah, that's right. And it's not it's not my book, but if you don't mind, I will plug a book. Yeah. I think maybe some of your, uh, or many of your listeners might really appreciate, particularly if they're parents, and especially if they're parents of girls, mm. which is iGen. If you haven't heard of the book, it's called mm-hmm. iGen, um, and it's by a, um, a social psychologist named Jean Twinge, and um, she documents um, with, with very, very large data sets um, some of the challenges that um, people, particularly teenage girls, are having in terms of increased anxiety and depression and other mental health-related problems that she makes a pretty strong case are directly related to social media. And, mm-hmm. she's, and she uses very large data sets and finds that you know, the less people spend time in face-to-face activities, including she's looked at things like religious attending religious services, um, but also things like playing sports, um, volunteering. The less time young people spend doing that, and the more time they spend on 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 social media, um, the more mental health problems they have. Mm. And this seems to be particularly the case for girls, um, because girls seem to be more likely to engage in these kind of social comparisons of, well, what is what am I being left out of, or mm. the, what's the um, I'm going to sound old, but what's the term? Um, 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 FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Yeah. Um, right, and so um, this isn't good for anyone, of course, but she documents that it has particularly strong negative effects hmm. on on young on young girls and young women. Um, and so that's just one one illustration of that. But yeah, I highly recommend that book, IGN. It's it's definitely eye opening, especially if you if you're raising daughters. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Rutledge, you had uh, made a made comment at, toward the beginning again of the, the interview that um, there were some, some aspects of your findings that were controversial. So I'm curious, uh, how is the larger um, academic world responding to your paper? What have you heard in response to that so far? So, I mean, we've had good success getting the research published in, in, in academic journals, so, that, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but... <laughs> But yeah, I've had some interesting. You know, I've had a, uh, I have a number of great stories of presenting some of this, presenting some of this work at conferences. And in fact, I had this one encounter with this um, with this psychologist who I had the you know one paper we published was specifically on UFO conspiracy hmm. beliefs. And so there, there there's people who don't only um, aren't. It's not just that they're open minded to the possibility of. Um, UFOs and aliens, but have very strong beliefs about the reason humans exist is because we were colonized by an alien species, and they've oh, built sure. the pyramids, and they're monitoring. You know, so all these pretty pretty in-depth beliefs that were part of this larger cosmic commune. Uh, and so I was presenting some of, these, some of these results, showing that the less religious people are, the more likely they are to believe that stuff. Hmm. And... It appears to be because they, of the lack of meaning in life. So lower religiosity is associated with less meaning 
less meaning was our strongest predictor of having these kind of UFO um, beliefs. So I presented this at this conference, and this you know this the psychologist came up to me enraged, and he was like, "I you know your research is BS and all this stuff," and I, he, he's like, "I know for a fact that." Non non religious people, atheists are are rational. You know, basically, this is mm. argument. He's mm-hmm. like, you're. He he just didn't accept it. I'm like, well, you're. I'm happy to share my data with you. You know, you're happy to go. You know, collect your own data. In fact, some of our research, um, we were replicating findings from other countries, like um, the United Kingdom, where they showed that the less religious people are, the more likely they are to believe in aliens. They didn't look at meaning in life, but mm. you know, that that link between. Um, a lack of faith and belief in aliens is pretty robust. Um, hmm. And so, you know, I've had those kinds of experiences where people just want to reject it because they want to imagine, well, no, the people who <laughs> the people who aren't religious, they're the sensible, reasonable, rational, um, enlightened class. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think that's been, that's been one of the, you know, one of the barriers is people, like, they don't want to think that maybe... Um, you know, maybe the people that they see as you know as, as rational and enlightened are actually believing all sorts of things. Um, and that's what's so incredible is when you look at a lot of the scientific breakthroughs and some of the most phenomenal inventions or discoveries. Um, it's been people of religion mm-hmm. who have who have discovered. I mean, uh, God and and His wisdom and how He you know, brings forth the knowledge in the world. Yeah. Um, it's been people of faith um, in, in quite large numbers. And really, it's, it's, it's a, only a Christian worldview that allows for science itself. The, the understanding, the kind of the foundational principle that, it, that reality is actually intelligible and not just random and happenstance, which like you, you talk about, you know, being colonized by aliens or dropped off here or whatever, like that just seems like a random circumstance. Like, wh- how would I find meaning in that? Right. Um, whereas if yeah, I understand yeah. that I have a, an origin that I came from and a destination that I'm going to, something that I, I'm contributing toward and, and a place that I'm going, um, that, that leads, I would imagine, it leads toward uh, a sense of a purpose and meaning. Whereas a lot of these other kind of um, you know, fantastic scenarios, they're just like, that's just what happened. And what do I do with that? Right. Yeah, and you're right. Like it, it certainly is the case that the alien police don't <laughs> don't provide any. You know, at least in our data, like they're not um, they're not associated with you know with a higher sense of meaning. They're mm-hmm. associated with a lack, a lack of meaning. Um, yeah. And so it is. Uh, um, that's definitely the the case from our you know from our findings. I was curious because um, in asking the question, because you know certainly we find in public discourse right now, conversations with people that oftentimes people are not moved by facts and data. They're moved by their emotions and where, how invested they are in a particular proposition and so on. And I was, I was curious if you find in the scientific community that there's more receptivity to just data. But um, I imagine scientists are also people, right? And they have their own vested interests. And so what's your experience there? Is, is a scientific community more receptive to, to having their mind change, or at least to, to a new understanding, a new way of looking at things, or are they pretty entrenched in the way that they want to go about things as it is? Yeah, I mean, I hate to speak too broadly, because of mm-hmm. course, you know, it's mixed. Right. No, it's, a mix, it, it's a mixed bag. I mean, there are people that, of course, are very open and, you know, and um, 
to taking on new information and new data. And um, one of the challenges in, in academia, though, and, um, and in, in my you know my field in particular in psychology, but other other fields too, like sociology, is there, um, which is you know this is a slightly different topic, but there is not a lot of what's referred to as viewpoint diversity. Mm. Um, so this is something you see a lot in political conversations that most most people in the, in the social sciences and in the humanities are um, on the far left of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. And um, and so on the surface, that seems like it doesn't have anything to do with this conversation. But, um, but, what, but what we find is that, the, like any, you know, kind of group, if, if you just get people that all kind of start to only hire people and only mm-hmm. talk to people that all think the exact same thing, it becomes very insular, and then it becomes less open to to new data and to new ideas mm-hmm. and, and challenges. So I think that even influences a little bit of this because there's um, there's actually a fair amount of um, of you know I wouldn't maybe be extreme to say anti Christian, but mm-hmm. there is a kind of anti religious um, groupthink, you know, kind of bias. Yeah, in 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 certain segments of of academia, not everywhere, and for not every you know not and not at every and not in every field, of course, but, mm-hmm. um, um, but you certainly see this see this challenge, which makes it harder because then people in media are like, oh, well, you're just, um, you're challenging, you know, the group and nobody wants, you know, nobody wants to hear that, that alternative perspective. Um, and so I think, I think ideological bias has been a problem in, in, in sure. even the sciences. Yep. What's really neat, though, is uh, we want to hear about more projects that you're starting to work on or are working on because this paper is just phenomenal and it just it, it just digs so deep into a lot of things going on in our society past yeah. present it's it just really nails you know where we're we're just not focused right. on on the realness the trueness of uh, the beauty of where we're we came from. Yeah. Um, but yeah, tell us, Clay, about some of the other projects yeah. you're working on. We only on. have about a minute left, but <laughs> if you could give us a quick okay. summary. Okay, yeah, I can be quick. Well, you know, a lot of my work um, focuses on, of course, meaning in life, and even beyond what we were talking about, the, the, the religious dimension, which is just one, one area of my research. Um, one of the things that we found is meaning has the strong motivational power. So meaning isn't just an indicator of, of, well, uh, of well-being. When people feel meaningful and purposeful, not surprisingly, both in our previous discussion, they want to act. They want to do things. Um, and so that can predict all sorts of things, including economic activity. People who have a strong sense of meaning, they have what we refer to as existential agency. That is, they feel like they have the ability to live a, a, a fulfilling, a meaningful life, which makes them want to start businesses or makes them want to volunteer more or you know, makes them want to engage their community and help others. And so that's a big, that's kind of the broader area of research is how meaning mobilizes, energizes, and inspires people to go out and to do things and to take risks and to help others and to try to make the world a better place. Um, and of course, that has all sorts of business and economic types of implications. Awesome. Well, yeah, we want to thank you for being on with us, Dr. Religion, and for the work that you're doing. It's, it's terrific and I think powerful. It's, um, it's a, a gift to many and uh, and points us to where we're actually oriented to go. So it's uh, it's just fabulous that we have you on and that that you're doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, we thank you so much, Clay, for joining us. And and again, just 
keep on going with what you're doing. It's fantastic. And I know the world is hungry for it. Mm -hmm. It needs it. It wants it. It desires it. And it will help to replace the other false things that people are bringing into their lives. Yeah. So thanks so much for being with us this morning. And thank you. And thank you for the kind words. It was was great to um, be on and have a discussion with you. Absolutely. All right, we are going to have to take a quick break here, but on the other side of this break, we're going to be finding out who won the donuts with the Honor Your Father segment. We've got some great segments about 